This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Adikar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. All right. Well, welcome. Welcome to our class. And um, <clears throat> I'd like to start. Um, this is class number four in the Heschel series. Um, and in part because one of the projects of this class has to really build uh, an understanding of Heschel's theology and the building blocks of his theology, I have found it helpful. I hope you have found it helpful as well to start each class with a mini recap of what we've covered in previous classes because I think there's a, a cumulative understanding that we're building here of Heschel's writings. So um, I'll do this you know, relatively quickly so that we can get into the substance of our new excerpt today. Um, but essentially over the past three classes, over the first two classes, we focused on Heschel's concept of wonder and awe right? and the ways in which wonder leads to awe. But for today, rather than focus on the, the difference between the two, what I want to say is that wonder and awe are significant in that they lead us into two essential realizations. Number one, our life is a gift, and that gift has been bestowed upon us. We're the recipients of the gift, right? We didn't create this gift, we received it. And number two, God is the gift giver who makes all of reality possible. So wonder and awe are orientations towards reality, towards life, towards our existence that helps us understand that our life is a gift and helps us understand that God gave us this gift. Now, upon realizing, upon you know waking up, and by the way, this might be something that we have to wake up to again and again and again, right? But the experience of waking up to these facts of existence Heschel speaks about the ultimate question that ought to bubble up within us in response to the experience of awe and wonder. And the ultimate question is essentially, how will we respond to the gift of our lives? How will we respond to the gift giver, God's self? How does God want us to live our lives? How does God want us to use this gift that is life? All of those were in my words, but in Heschel's words, the ultimate question is, what does God demand of each of us? All right, so I want you to imagine for the visual thinkers here, okay, if, if we are a seed, like a plant seed, wonder cracks the seed. And these questions that I've just named emerge as the stalk of the, as the stem, right? The, the stem of the plant that grows. And these are essential human questions. And Heschel also teaches that these questions are the jumping off point of religion. Right? Religion is, in other words, how we respond to these ultimate questions. And as we read last week, all that's left of us is a choice to answer or to refuse to answer. All right, so if the ultimate question, this is still recap, hopefully this is sounding relatively familiar to what we've covered in previous classes. Um, if the ultimate question is, what does God demand of us? It ought to lead to a very pragmatic, reasonable question. How do we know? 
How do we know what God wants of us? Where, where, where does that wisdom, where does that knowledge come from? And the text that we looked at last week begins to answer that question. The answers to that question are found through revelation, both private and collective. Right? So if you recall, Heschel depicts different kinds of revelation. Private revelation, those are the quiet insights, right? The, the stirrings of one's conscience, the echo of the still small voice, right? Heschel uses a number of different terms to try to describe this, that point our internal GPS in the right direction, right? Towards God towards understanding what God wants of us. But then there's also a kind of private revelation, which is found in the action of making meaning of the unfolding events of our lives. Um, he writes quite poetically, quote, learning how to spell the meaning of life experiences backwards. Right? So that's a very interesting layer to add to Revelation, right? I think we, we tend to think of Revelation as this sort of present moment flash of insight, right? The light bulb goes off or the, the heart skips a beat and we, we're reoriented in our, in our perspective. Um, but Heschel is saying that there's also an element of Revelation, which is, sounds a little bit more like the examined life, right? Thinking back on the events of our life and making meaning is a form of revelation. So those are two examples of private revelation that again, help us answer the question, what does God demand of us? But then there's also collective revelation, right? And the, the language that Heschel uses to describe collective revelation, and I quote again, the installments of insight that have been bestowed upon us throughout the years. I love that. I love that, right? There's a, again, a sort of a cumulative effect. There's, there's periods or, or moments of collective revelation that we record that alter the direction of human history. And for Heschel, of course, the Bible is, is uh, you know, prime, the primary evidence of that. The, the Bible is the record of the collective revelation that contains these installments of insight that help us know what God wants from us. Now, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna be careful here, and this came up a little bit last class because you know I think this definition and this pointing to the Bible, you know, leads us to wonder. Well, you know, what is it about the Bible? Right? I mean, this this group of Jews or Jew adjacents that are gathering here, right? We, we want to wrestle with the Bible a lot. We want to argue with the Bible. We're probably quick to point out that the Bible is filled with commandments that, yikes, if that's what God wants of us, then we're in trouble, right? So, so what exactly does Heschel mean when he says that the Bible is this source of revelation, which helps inform us of what God wants from us. Yes, it's the commandments, right? It is the commandments, but Heschel is a rabbinic Jew. So let's remember that he doesn't mean the commandments exclusively as written in the Bible, an eye for an eye, right? He means the commandments as continually interpreted and evolved by the interpreters of the Bible. Okay, so that's number one. But I think that that his his belief that the Bible is a source of revelation um, is about more than just listing off the six hundred and thirteen specific commands, right? That are supposed to give structure and guidance to our life. The Bible, I think, most importantly for Heschel, discloses insights about who God is. The Bible tells us about the concerns of God. 
Right. So the Bible is that collective record of insight, of revelation, that tells us about the gift giver, who the gift giver is, what the gift giver cares about, which in turn helps us know what to do with this gift of life. Right? Do you all follow that distinction? It's, it's yes, we learn about God. We learn about what God wants from us from the commandments. But we also learn about what God wants from us through the Bible's presentation of God as character, right? Of God as being who summons us into relationship with that God. That we learn if the Torah, I mean, now I'm mixing my metaphors a little bit because life is a gift. But if the Torah is also a gift, right, then what do we learn about the gift giver from this particular gift? Okay. So um, I'm going to turn to our reading in just a moment, but let me just pause and see if, if folks have any questions about the recap, anything that I've said that sparked some new revelation or some new question. And feel free to turn your microphone on or you can write in the chat. I'll do my best to, to monitor both. Hey, Rabbi. Yeah, Daniel. Daniel Duman. Um, we learn about God as gift givers based on the commandments and according to Heschel, these are rabbinic Jews, interpretations and the evolving concepts. But the idea of the stories inside of the Torah, you know, the the families, the community. What does that tell us about that that thought? Yeah, good question. Um, because they clearly weren't, in many respects, model citizens to the <laughs> untrained eye, right? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And by the way, to the trained eye, right? The rabbis also. Uh, the rabbis also spend a fair amount of time dissecting the behavior of the patriarchs and the matriarchs and 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 being critical of their behaviors right so so i think perhaps the way i would answer that is that um the bible isn't just what i've described right the bible isn't just um you know god's attempt to self disclose what god is all about but the bible is also in part a record of our attempt of human attempt to discern God's will in the world. And as humans, we mess up all the time, right? We, we, we are trying to live in accordance with what God wants from us, but we have free will. And there's an enormous gap between God's will and free will and human will. And so we, we mess up all the time. And so the Bible also contains plenty of examples of humans trying to live in accordance with what God wants from us, but falling short. And in that sense, the Bible, I would say, is, uh, is, is as an educational tool, that much richer, right? Because it, because it shows us um, examples of, of where we have gone astray, not just this is what perfection looks like. I think that's perhaps how, how, he and I would answer, if I can say so. Yeah, but there's also the concept that before the flood, I mean, God created man and the generations that came, and his only answer to to correcting it was to basically obliterate it and start over. Yeah. Right, so that there's an understanding that, you know what, part of what God wants from us is we do our best, and you you may not get it right by a lot, but it doesn't necessarily require you to try to meaningfully fix something that's beyond broke. Yeah. And, and I will say, right. That some of the examples in the Bible of um, God's willingness to destroy and not, and sometimes not just willingness, but God following through on, on God's determination to destroy life, you know, human and non-human life. Um, I think does present a challenge to the to the, the the concept of God that Heschel is going to advance as as primary. Um, but I think 
this is going to sound a little bit backwards, but um, I think Heschel would still read those stories and stories of divine anger as an expression of God's care and concern for for humanity and for God's creation, and a uh, and a disappointment that we have fallen short in living in accordance with with God's desires for us. All right, Rena, and then I want to jump into. I want to I want to jump into my introduction of today's reading. How's that for honesty? Go ahead, Rena. Daniel was bringing up it's not just God's anger. There's an there's a part of the God character that I think certainly I and most people in this community also reject. I'll, I'll use statements on homosexuality, for example, right? I mean, so where if, if Heschel is saying the Tanakh is the ultimate revelation of God's character to us, the ultimate educational book, if you will, of that character, and yet he's cherry picking, right, according to his value set, and we are too, according to our value set. So how do we reconcile that within Heschel's theology? Yeah, I, I, good. it's a good question, Rena. I, I think I think Heschel would would uh, you know, Heschel is not a fundamentalist, right? And while Heschel maintains some notion of Torah Misenai, right, that the Torah is given from God to Moses at Mount Sinai, Heschel is, is not going to deny the presence of the human hand in the, uh, in the, in the writing of the Bible, right? And so, the Bible is sti still filtered through the human mind's attempt to discern who God is and what God wants from us. And because it's filtered through the human mind and the human hand, it's always susceptible to the kinds of lapses of judgment and misunderstandings of what God wants that comes with being human. Okay, so... Um, my goal for today in selecting the reading uh, is to dive a little bit further into our understanding of right, who is the gift giver that gave us this gift in the first place? Who is God? Who is this God that we are trying to live our lives understanding what God wants of us? What can we learn about God from the Bible, but also from Heschel's theology, and how does that impact how we answer the question, what does God demand of us? In a sense, perhaps this ought to have been the starting place of our learning, but, you know, jumping in on day one in minute one to who is God, I'm not sure you all would have come back, or I'm not sure I would have come back. That would have been really tough, a tough place to start. Okay, so and actually, I will say, as I hope I've demonstrated over the past three weeks, there really is a progression for Heschel, right? Wonder, which leads to awe, which leads to you know, this kind of wisdom, which we receive through revelation, of which the Bible is significant. Okay, all right. So um, I want to teach you two terms that are not, that are, not defined in the excerpt that we're going to read, but you need to know what they mean in order to understand the excerpt that we're going to mean. And it's a little bit, I admit, of sort of philosophy talk, right? Philosophy speak here. Um, so if you feel your eyes glazing at all, uh, fill up a glass of cold water, okay? So the two terms are reflexive concern and transitive concern, reflexive concern and transitive concern. And I think the easiest way to define these terms is that reflexive concern is concern with the self and its future, right? I'm concerned, my reflexive concern is I'm concerned for my well-being, I'm concerned with what I'm going to eat for dinner tonight. I'm concerned with what makes me happy and what makes me fulfilled, right? Those are reflexive concerns. The arrow is pointing towards the self. Transitive concern 
is concerned with the interest of others. Right? I'm concerned with your health. I'm concerned with what you're going to eat for dinner tonight. I'm concerned with what brings you meaning and joy and purpose in life. So Heschel is going to write in the chapters before the excerpt that we're going to read today that there's nothing inherently wrong with reflexive concern. Right? All, all organic life, by definition, is invested in its own vitality, in its own perpetuation, right? Evolution uh, is is uh, good evidence for that. Okay, we're all concerned with the securing what we need to survive another day. Okay, but Heschel's warning is that reflexive concern cannot be or become the entirety of man's concern. So he writes, a man entirely unconcerned with his self is dead. You need some reflexive concern, right? You need, you need to think about what's for dinner. But a man exclusively concerned with his self, exclusively concerned with his self, is a beast. A vital requirement of human life is transitive concern or regard for others in addition to reflexive concern and intense regard for self. So what we're seeing here, I believe, and as I've said before, I'm really influenced by Shai Held's writing on Heschel is the building blocks of Heschel's call for humanity, for humans to strive for self-transcendence, right? To strive to go beyond exclusive reflexive concern into an increasing capacity and manifestation of transitive concern. Heschel writes in God in Search of Man, this is a, a beautiful quote, the greatest beauty grows at the greatest distance from the ego. The greatest beauty grows at the greatest distance from the ego. Right? And I think we understand that better in light of what he's saying about reflexive and transitive concern. Right? The ego is preoccupied with reflexive concern. Me, 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 me. The greatest beauty grows at the greatest distance from the ego from the preoccupation with reflexive concern. Why? What's so beautiful about that great distance? It's crossing the bridge from reflexive concern to transitive concern, right? That's where Heschel wants us to land. And what you're about to see is that for Heschel, God is the ultimate model of transitive concern. God is the dugma ishit, the, the moral exemplar right, of transitive concern. He's even going to go so far to say that God has no reflexive concern. God is all transitive concern. God is, God is exclusively concern for others. Okay, now before we respond to that, I want you to see it in Heschel's words, but hopefully this sort of gives you the like the tracks to, to now make sense of what we're about to read. Okay, so let me share my screen. Um, okay, just give me a thumbs up if you can see it. Okay, let me make it a little bit bigger. Okay, so um, once again, we are... Um, we are reading from Between God and Man. This is a collection of Heschel's writings. It's all Heschel in his own words, but um, selected writings and excerpts that Fritz Rothschild put together. Um, this passage here is from uh, God in Search of Man. Okay, all right. So here we go. I'm starting with God's existence. God's existence. What may it mean? Being eternal, temporality does not apply to him. 
may reflexive concern be predicated of him. He does not have to be concerned about himself since there is no need of his being on guard against danger to his existence. Okay, let me pause here just to, to explain that, make sure we're all on the same page, right? Finite beings like me and you, right, have to respond to the real threat that if I don't eat dinner tonight and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day, I might cease to exist, right? We are not eternal. We are finite. And being finite, and for that matter, being built of organic matter, which decomposes, such is the nature of organic matter, right? We, we, we have to have some reflexive concern or else our story will come to a quick end, right? But God is eternal, right? God has no end. And there's nothing threatening God's existence. God knows where God's getting God's next dinner, so to speak, okay? Right? So God has no need to guard against danger for God's existence. The only concern, I'm continuing now, the only concern that may be ascribed to him is a transitive concern, one which is implied in the very concept of creation. For if creation is conceived as a voluntary activity of the supreme being, it implies a concern with that which is coming into being. Since God's existence is continuous, his concern or care for his creatures must be abiding. While man's concern for others is often tainted with concern for his own self and characterized as a lack of self-sufficiency and a requirement for the perpetuation of his own existence, God's care for his creatures is a pure concern. Right? Take a moment to digest Heschel in his own words, which always requires <laughs> lingering for an extra moment. Doesn't right. it suggest that creation is for is ongoing forever? Say it again, Daniel. Doesn't it suggest that God's transitive concern is ongoing, meaning that creation never ends? Yes, I think that's right. I, I Heschel will write elsewhere. I forget if it's in the excerpt that I gave you today. Um, but right, let there be right, which is the language that God uses to create, right, is, is, um, is ongoing. And by the way, we, we say this in our daily tefillot, right, that God renews the works of creation each and every day. Um, so God is, in, is engaged in a perpetual process of creation, now, whether that's eternal or not, I think Heschel would would pause, right? Because would 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 hesitate to say yes, because that depends on God's will, right? God could cease to engage in the act of creation. That that hasn't been our story thus far, right? But God is the one who makes creation possible. So I'm not, I don't, I don't think he would want to say that creation is co-eternal with God, right? Creation emerges from a reality in which God already exists, right? God pre-exists day one of creation and who knows into, into the future, you know, what, 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 what will be, um, Judith. Um, so I, I have a problem with this idea that God is solely and only interested in others, uh, not the self, because number one, fundamentally, just by creating the universe, that to me is a selfish act. You know, nobody asked for us to be here. No one created, you know what I mean? God made the decision for God's self that we're, I'm gonna make this world and these people. And I so right from the start, I don't believe that 
God is only interested in other people. But that being said, let's say, okay, he, that's not a, a fundamentally selfish act. The fact that there is pain and suffering in the world, the fact of what's going on in Israel right now, the Holocaust, what have you, being kicked out of the Garden of Eden. You know, if you are really interested or care about uh, others or something other than yourself, um, I don't know how one justifies that as being caring for your creation. Okay. So I don't know what Heschel would argue against that. Okay, so so the second point is uh, is a uh, probably the most famous problem in all of philosophy and and really particular to theology, right? Which is the problem of evil, right? How does the existence of evil um, reflect on the existence or power or goodness or 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 omniscience of God? Right. And this is a this is a problem that every theologian is going to have to respond to if they're worth their weight in salt as a theologian. Now, how Heschel does that, I, I'd like to not tackle that today, okay, because it, it deserves its own class, the problem of evil in Heschel's theology. Right. But what I will say is that Heschel's God is not pulling the strings on day-to-day activities. Heschel's God is supremely concerned with the everyday affairs of humanity, but not dictating them, not, you know, not turning someone left instead of turning them right. That's, that's not how Heschel's God operates. But, now to but the first... God, but, oh, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but I'm not even talking about what humans do to humans. I'm talking about what God does to humans, such as kicking us out of the garden, such as the flood, such as, you know, God's own actions, the plague, sending the plagues to Egypt. Uh, you know what I mean? So it's not just a matter of what people do to people. It's God's own actions. So, okay, that's helpful, Judith. I mean, I, I think what Heschel would say, we might not like we might not like the justice of this, but I think that Heschel would say, um, human actions have consequences. And God is uh, actually demonstrating God's care and concern for us by teaching us that our actions have consequences. If you eat from the tree, which you're not supposed to eat from, the consequences exile from Gan Eden. If you fill the earth with lawlessness and corruption, as the generation of the flood did, the consequence is that God sends a flood. Now, again, we might we might bristle at that notion of divine justice, um, but but in in each of those cases. God is responding to the actions of humankind um, as opposed to, you know, unsolicited punishment. But, but Judith, that... the point the point stands. And again, I'm, I'm going to redirect us because the problem of evil it, it deserves more than a, a side, a side conversation as part of this class. Um, I do. And Rachel, I see your hand. Um, I, I do want to to your first point acknowledge that there's something very interesting going on here in Heschel's writing that creation, God's concern, God's transitive concern is implied in the concept of creation. If creation is conceived as a voluntary activity of the supreme being, it implies a concern with that which is coming into being. In other words, by creating, God is demonstrating concern for creation. And I'm curious, Judith, I heard your initial critique to that, that maybe there is some, there's some selfishness for that to that. And by the way, we should acknowledge that the man wrote a whole book called God in Search of Man. So he has a theology in which God needs man, right? But I think he would say that God needing man is still... Uh, congruent with God being ultimately concerned with man. Okay, Razel. 
Okay, so I just wanted to address, let me lower my hand. <laughs> I wanted to address the beginning of what um, Judith said, which is what you've just addressed, which is the question of whether God is somewhat self-reflexive. -reflect, um, um, I don't think I'd characterize God as selfish. However, it, and this is perhaps demonstrated more clearly in liturgy, we're, we are always being uh, guided to how we should serve God. So you asked a bigger question. You asked, how do we respond to this gift of life? But on the other hand, if it comes across as, you know, here are the ways you must serve God or, you know, to be a good human, to be a good Jew, whatever you want to say, then, then I question whether there is some self-reflexive um, issues going on, even though the logic of what you're saying, of what Heschel's saying about uh, God being eternal and no fear of, of going out of existence, et cetera. You know, I wonder if you could address that. Can you, can you, can you just ask the question again? I'm not sure I- Well, I'm sorry. So what I'm asking is Heschel seems to state that God is not self-reflexive, only self- uh, only transcendent concern has no reflexive concern, but 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 the Torah and and liturgy seems to always show how we are supposed to be serving God. How do we serve God? Mm -hmm. um, and so the question is, does that not show some reflexive concern? Mm. On the one hand, you're saying you're sort of positing it as. This is God teaching us how we need to behave. But on the other hand, it's it's characterized as serving God. Do you understand? Yeah, yeah, good. So, so our service of God, I think what I think what Heschel would say um, is that our service of God is uh is our imitation of God. Our service of God is adopting, is the ability to look at things from the point of view of God and then acting accordingly. So serving God is transcending the ego and stepping into full responsibility for the other. Now, Razel, I think I I I I I think there, you still have a there's still something remaining, right, of your point that it seems like God gets some benefit from this from this arrangement, right? And 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 I think that that's fair. I think it's fair to say that. And and so maybe we we want to critique Heschel on his characterization of God as hundred percent you know transitive, and maybe we want to say, listen, we're more comfortable with ninety ten. Right, the whole the whole arrangement of covenant, right, seems to imply some uh, mutual benefit, right, and and maybe that qualifies this this characterization of God as a hundred percent transitive concern. Um, by the way, you know, you mentioned evidence in the Torah in our liturgy. The most serious critique to, to Heschel's presentation of God as exclusively a God of transitive concern is passages from the Torah. I'm thinking now of the moment when God wants to destroy the Israelites for their worship of the golden calf. And Moses, in his argumentation to God, basically says, God, what are the Egyptians going to say about you? They're going to tell the story that you're the God that brought these people out in order to kill them in the wilderness. That's not going to reflect well on your name. And that seems to be compelling to God. So, so that I think, I wonder how Heschel would respond to that proof text because it, there does seem to be evidence in the, in the text of the Torah itself that God isn't exclusively driven by transitive concern. Um, but maybe it's helpful for us to, to understand that at the very least for Heschel, right, God is a model of transitive concern that, that, and we are pretty far from, from 
adopting that model as our own way of being, but it's what we ought to strive for. Okay, Leah, and then we'll go back into the text. We all are have the spark of divinity in us. That's what I believe. And isn't that spark of divinity transitive concern? You know, if we didn't have that, we would be um, as utterly uh, ego-driven and self-centered uh, as anyone we can think of. On, I mean, there are some people like this. They seem to have lost their spark. But most people, that's what draw, That's what makes our hearts sing when we read that somebody was selfless in in tiny instances and in really big instances because they are bringing forth that heart which is like god not god but like god yeah i think that i think that's exactly right i think that's that's what um gives us the capacity to be more than beast in heschel's words okay so i want to take us back into the text um here we go just give me the thumbs up when you can see it all right so for the eternal you know the eternal god part of what is eternal is god's concern god's concern for god's creation is always abiding and in this sense god is a model of self-transcendence a model of transitive concern and Heschel's now going to give us a couple of foils, right? He's going to give us a couple of conceptions of God from, from other belief systems that, that, uh, that stand in contrast to the, to the God of Israel and the God that Heschel is writing about. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm on according to Cicero. According to Cicero, the gods are careful about great things and neglect small ones. According to the prophets of Israel, from Moses to Malachi, God is concerned with small matters. What the prophets tried to convey to man was not a conception of an eternal harmony, of an unchangeable rhythm of wisdom, but the perception of God's concern with concrete situations. Disclosing the pattern of history in which the human is interwoven with the divine, they breathed they, the prophets, breathed a divine earnestness into the world of man. Okay, so God is not just concerned with, you know, the, the, the orbits of the planets, right? God is concerned with me and you, with our day-to-day -day affairs. God is concerned with Sarah and her infertility. God is concerned with Moses when he's fled Egypt and is aimless in his life. God is concerned with the Israelite people as they're groaning crescendos in Egypt. God is concerned with the fate of orphans and widows and strangers. Right? God is... Um, concerned with concrete situations as they unfold in the events of human history. Different from Cicero's understanding of the gods. Okay, let's, let's, let's encounter a couple of these foils and then react to them. In mythology, the deities are thought of as self-seeking, as concerned with their own selves, immortal, superior to man in power and wisdom, they are often inferior to man in morality. Homer and Hesiod have ascribed to the gods all the things that are a shame and a disgrace among mortals, stealings and adulteries and deceivings of one another. Okay, so in this second foil, right, God is God is concerned with the self, right? But Heschel's saying, no, not our God. Our God is not concerned with the self and our God is supremely moral. The God, as opposed to the gods of mythology who are self-centered and egotistic and driven by reflexive passions. All right, let's keep going. 
The Bible, this is interesting. The Bible tells us nothing about God in himself. All its sayings refer to his relations to man. His own life and essence are neither told nor disclosed. We hear of no reflexive concern, of no passions, except a passion for justice. The only events in the life of God the Bible knows of are acts done for the sake of man, acts of creation, acts of redemption, or acts of revelation. I, I By the way, I find this interesting because I wonder if he's taking a little bit of a side shot at at the at the Zohar and at, at Jewish mysticism, which is a little surprising for me because he's a student of the Hasidic tradition, which is obviously anchored in Jewish mysticism. But, you know, Jewish mysticism is very interested with, you know, what does God eat for breakfast? Very interested in what are the internal workings of God's mind and you know, what, what's happening exclusively in the divine spheres, but that's very much not the focus of the Bible. And Heschel's right about that, right? The focus of the Bible is God in relation to humanity, right? The way, and as Heschel would put it, the ways in which God uh, demonstrates God's concern for humanity, all right, let's read one more because there's there's one more foil here. Zeus is passionately interested in pretty female deities and becomes inflamed with rage against those who incite his jealousy. The God of Israel is passionately interested in widows and orphans. Let's we'll read one more. Divine concern means taking means his taking interest in the fate of man. It means that the moral and spiritual state of man engages his attention. It is true that his concern is, to most of us, one of the most baffling mysteries. How could a God so big, so self-transcendent care about us? But it is just as true that to those whose life is open to God, his care and love are a constant experience. All right. God the God, the God of the Bible, right? The God of Heschel's theology is a God who is supremely, maybe even exclusively concerned with humankind, with creation, I should say. And is not driven by God's own self-centered passions. Now, I want to add one more foil, which isn't in this excerpt, but is Heschel writes about elsewhere, which is the God of Greek philosophy. This is the sort of the God of Aristotle, which in many ways becomes or influences, I should say, the God of Maimonides. And one of the most influential conceptions of God that sweeps through Jewish theology and and is still I would say a very loud voice in in modern Jewish theology. Um, the God of Greek philosophy, right, is the unmoved mover, right? The 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 omnipotent God who does not change because change is a threatens God's perfection. Right in Greek philosophy, if God changes, then that means that in one moment, you know, God was right, and in the mo next moment, God was wrong. In one moment, God, um, you know, held a certain perspective, and in the next moment, changed. And that that notion of change um, is a big, big threat to the perfection of God in Greek philosophy, which really, as I said before, influences Maimonides' philosophy. But what that means, right, if you have a God who doesn't change, it means you have a God who doesn't have emotion, that doesn't feel things, that isn't moved by our prayer, that isn't stirred by our actions, or even angered by our actions, disappointed in our actions. 
So the, the, the god of Greek philosophy for Heschel is totally aloof and impervious essentially to everything but God's self. The god of Greek philosophy is devoid of transitive concern. Heschel writes that the god of the philosophers is all indifference, too sublime to possess a heart or to cast a glance at our world. It's a god who is apathetic and indifferent, which now Heschel's really going to slam the hammer, which gives rise to a parallel conception of man, right? Humans who are apathetic and indifferent, right? Because if the project for Heschel is to imitate God, to understand that God is a God of transitive concern, who cares deeply about the well-being of others, then perhaps the biggest threat right, to that God is a God who has no feelings, who, who doesn't actually care. And, uh, and, and of course, Heschel thinks that, that, that you know, man is then created in the image of God. Right? Then, then we become people who are indifferent and who don't care. All right, let's pause for a moment. We've set up a couple of foils, Greek philosophy, um, uh, Zeus, mythology, Cicero, right? All of these gods that are not the god that Heschel is describing. Go ahead, Jason. Okay, thanks. Um, so, you know, what, what Heschel seems to want to say here, and people here, there are people here who obviously disagree with this, but this is what, he seems to want to say is that is that God is visible, you know, almost like one of those pictures where you see the chalice in the negative space between the the kissing people. Um, that you know, he's visible kind of in 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 the negative. He, he's visible in the act of concern for us. Later in this reading, he he says. Uh, God is essentially like the only way that we can get in touch with God is in the moment of feeling seen by by Him. You know that it is that it is as if um, that it is in yeah in this concern. So so it's sort of like um, He wants to direct us away from anthropomorphizing, from critiquing, and from and from trying to view God in himself and wants to say it's not about him. You know, it's about pointing you in some direction. That, that's, that's how I read this passage. This he, yes, and, and Jason, I think that's right. And, and for Heschel, the ultimate model of viewing God in, and, and feeling God in the way that you just described, the ultimate model is the prophets. Right. And so for Heschel, what he what he calls prophetic consciousness, right? To to view the world, or more importantly, to view God through the lens of a prophet, is to be intoxicated with the awareness of God's relationship to God's people and to all of humanity. Right. So and so what prophets attempt to do is to move us both to respond to God's concern. Ah, the prophet realizes God is supremely concerned with those who are suffering. So then the prophet takes us into God's mind, takes us into God's message of transitive concern as a way to both respond to it, right? And to share in it, to, to, as I said before, right, to, to look at things from the point of view of God and then to adopt that viewpoint. And so that's the that's prophetic consciousness. And it's it's available to all of us at all times. Right. I want to I don't know if this isn't exactly what you're referring to, but I'll just quickly show us this passage. Right? This is if you skip a couple paragraphs down. Right. When we say that God is present with all within all being, we don't mean that God inheres in them as a component or ingredient of their physical structure. God in the universe is a spirit of concern for life. What is a thing to us is a concern to God. What is a part of the physical world of being is also a part of the divine world of meaning. To be is to stand for, to stand for a divine concern. 
The tree is a thing in my eye. But to God, the tree represents that which God is concerned about. I'll show you one more passage that I think hammers home this point. Let's see if I can find it. Um, mm, 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 mm. Ah, <laughs> it was the very next paragraph. God is present in his continuous expression. He is imminent in all beings in the in the way in which a person is imminent in a cry no, that he utters. Oops. In a, listen to that, right? God is imminent in all beings in a way in which a person is imminent in a cry that he utters. Right? If you just heard my cry, but didn't see me, I am implied by the cry. Where did this cry come from? Where did this voice come from? Right? God is imminent in all beings in the way in which a person is imminent in a cry that he utters. God is implied by the presence of the cry. He stands for what he says. He's concerned with what he says. All beings are replete with the divine word, which only leaves when our viciousness profanes and overbears his silent, patient presence. All right, go ahead, Karen. <clears throat> this may sound very simplistic, but um, I, I love it in that it gives a new meaning or understanding to me about um, the, the, the one God notion of Judaism and, and as opposed to polytheism and the difference between the between our God being concerned about life and humanity where the other the the polytheistic religions are are not so it's it gives me it, it gives reason to me or, or meaning to that understanding of of why our God is different mm-hmm yeah, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know enough about sort of. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to cast polytheistic religions in 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 a particular light. I mean, they're different one from the next, and I'm certainly no expert in that. But certainly, certainly, Heschel is contrasting right the gods of ancient Greece and ancient Rome, right for sure, with with the god of Israel, who, um, who is known through their ultimate concern for us, right? And the Bible is the record of that. And what we feel when we truly recognize that this life of ours is a gift is that there's a God who is concerned with us and who gave us this gift. This is Heschel's theology. It, it need not be your theology, right? But but I think that this is um, this is what Heschel is um, articulating in terms of you know what is it that is distinct about our God, and then I would say <clears throat> equally important is. Once you recognize that this is the God who we serve, to use the language from before, right? Then answering the question, what does God demand of us, begins to become clearer. Because what God demands of us is to close the gap between human consciousness and divine consciousness. And to adopt a divine consciousness, which is as defined as possible, by transitive concern, by being concerned with the well-being of others. That's what God does, and that's what we ought to do. So with that, we've reached 102. Um, and so uh, I thank you all for your wonderful questions and your comments, your agreements with Heschel and your disagreements with Heschel and with me. 
And uh, my, my goal for next class is to explore a little bit further this concept of, well, then what does it mean that God is in need of us or in search of us? That then becomes a very interesting question in light of what we've discussed today, I think. All right. Have a good one, everyone. Thanks so much. Hi, it's Rabbi Brass again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you, maybe even in person, sometime soon. <laughs>